Welcome to Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? Ing Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Drew Hart, church anti-racism leader, social change practitioner, author, and theology professor at Messiah College. Dr. Hart will be talking with us about our cultural moment in time and reflecting on themes from his new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. But then the American church in particular, and the ways in which they were prioritizing developing a slaveholding society, an oppressive society, exploitation. And and so they needed a different kind of Jesus, the Jesus uh, revealed in scripture. And I think the Jesus that certainly my ancestors knew was not compatible with the uh, kind of exploitation and oppression that they were committed to for their own personal gain and for their own wealth. And so um, I, I believe that part of the reason is that they converted Jesus into a, a mascot for the status quo. Dr. Hart is joined by one of the hosts of Ing Podcast, Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards. One quick note for our listeners, this episode was recorded before the 2020 United States presidential election. Welcome to the Ing Podcast. We're really glad to have you with us. And I am very excited that today I'm honored to have a conversation with Drew Hart. Uh, Drew, thank you for being here. Uh, Dennis, I've been looking forward to this. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, I am excited about your new book, Can I Get a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Man, this is good. I got it right here in my hands, and I've been going through it. This is very exciting. Oh, I I was excited about the release, especially because my book came out exactly with your book, and so it was like this kind of double combo, because I felt like they really (laughs) are just speaking uniquely to our moments um, in a really powerful way. So I'm excited that we kind of birthed books out at the same time. Yeah, I, I feel good about that. And you blurbed mine too. So thank you, brother. I, I, you know, before we get into some questions about the book, and I've got a few, I'm hoping that for people who might not know you yet or know you that well, if you could just share a bit about your journey, that could be personal, academic, professional, whatever you feel free to share. I guess um, one thing to know about me is I'm a Pennsylvania boy. I really am. <laughs> um, I've kind of bounced back and forth between Philly and Harrisburg for most of my life. All right. So born in, and raised in the Philly area in, in a community called Norristown, Pennsylvania, and um, been in the suburbs of Philly for about three years, for my last three years of high school, and then went to Messiah College in Central PA, then moved into Harrisburg. Um, did ministry. Actually, my first pastoral ministry at it was uh, my first connection with an Anabaptist community was um, Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church. I was a youth pastor there for three and a half years. Um, Moved back to Philly again, back in the black church, back into um, the Philly worlds and continued to do pastoral ministry. I, um, by that point, I got married, had my first child. Then I began seminary, did an MDiv with an urban concentration at now it's called Missio Seminary. Oh, yeah. And then let's see, after that, um, made the strange turn towards academic work, which was never on my mind, never a plan initially, <laughs> uh, but it was something kind of imposed. That I got the seed from professors. All right. And so, um, 
So I ended up going to Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and um, just exploring themes around Black theology and Anabaptism and how they help us think through issues around Christendom and white supremacy, colonialism, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, and then after that, found myself back in Harrisburg again because Messiah College, uh, or now Messiah University, uh, right. recruited me to um, come back. And so I'm teaching in the same department alongside some fellow colleagues. And so uh, now I have a family of, it's me and Renee, and then three boys, Mike wow. and Dietrich and Vincent. And so our youngest is three years old. Yeah. Oh my, oh my. Well, yep. you've got your hands full. But this is exciting. You get to go to, to teach where you went to school. Yeah, it's an interesting um, thing. And I know some people who at least have read my first book, sometimes they're surprised, like, you went back to Messiah after some of the stuff you described? But um, for me, it was, I, I actually, I love my department so much. My yeah. colleagues are amazing. And um, in some ways, it's one of the few places where I feel like I can fit in the world because because I'm, I, you know me, you know, Dennis, like I'm quirky. I got this black theology, black church thing, this Anabaptist thing. And I like all of that makes sense in my department at Messiah. We've got okay. probably the most all Anabaptist kind of department you can imagine. We've got folks who teach who are like Mennonites, Brethren in Christ, all Church right. of the Brethren. I got, you know, Emerson Powery, black biblical That's scholar. Right. It's just a great space for dialogue partners for me. Oh, that, that's good to hear because, you know, sometimes we can be working in spaces that are just uh, uh, add to the struggle and not help us to be who God's calling us to be. So I'm glad for you for this. You know, we met years ago and uh, yeah. and even though we're several years apart in our age, I feel like we have a lot in common and a lot of mutual friends. And and, yeah. I, and, and I appreciate the way you've been able to serve the God of the scriptures. You love God's people. At the yeah. same time, you work to dismantle injustice. I think that's a fair assessment of you, but, but don't those things go together? I mean, aren't they meant to go together? I mean, I guess another way I could be asking this is why are some Christians opposed to dismantling injustice or why are they afraid of what might even sometimes get termed social justice or such? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, it, the first thought is it is a bit baffling at first, right? I mean, it's hard when I read through the scriptures and encounter this God that the Israelites know who who they say delivered them from, you know, the the bondage of, of the Egyptians and this God who sent the prophets forth to, you know, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness <laughs> like ever flowing streams. And this Jesus that claims to come to preach good news to the poor and to let the oppressed go free. Like it's, it's hard to imagine why some people are so anti-social justice, but then all of a sudden you read um, certainly history, right? And yeah. The history yeah. of the church, and particularly not just broadly, but then the American church in particular, and the ways in which they were prioritizing developing a slaveholding society, an oppressive yeah. society, exploitation, and and so they needed a different kind of Jesus, the Jesus uh, revealed mm -hmm. in Scripture, and I think the Jesus that certainly my ancestors knew was not compatible with the. Uh, kind of exploitation and oppression that they were committed to for their own personal gain and for their own wealth. And so um, I, I believe that part of the reason is that they converted Jesus into a, a mascot for the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. um, and 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 they needed a Jesus that could co-sign and stamp all the different, you know, uh, endeavors and interests that they had. And so I, I think that that's one of the big, big things was just the domesticating of Jesus, the whitening and westernizing of Jesus, the yeah. watering him down and diluting his life and teachings so that he could then represent their interests. And it's no wonder that literally uh, 
in terms of his very image itself, then was fashioned after white Western man. Yeah. Wow. Well said. I, uh, boy, you hit on a lot of things right there. And I, I'm with you. There's, there's a book that came out from our same, uh, mental media publishers. Called, I, I, I wasn't at first a fan of the title plantation Jesus, oh, uh, right. <laughs> but, but I would have to say that they hit, they hit this, that, uh, yeah. the way, um, at least in the American context, there was a Jesus that was created to yeah. uphold the status quo. Um, you know, we, as we're talking about that, I'm thinking about, okay, we're in this pandemic because of COVID-19, but there's always this pandemic of white supremacy. We've been dealing with that yeah. since the inception of the country. And now, and I, got, I just had to ask you about this because it's just been a few days ago that the president has been appealing to his base and pushing for what he calls patriotic education. Mm, and uh, right. so I, I want to talk about this for a minute because you you write in here, and I just love the, the, the heading of this section, the myth of American innocence and the United States of amnesia. It was good. And you, and you get into um, uh, some of what uh, Jeremiah White Wright was preaching about that, that, that uh, President Obama had to back away from, and, and you yeah. deal with some of that uh, well. But, but my basic question is, why uh, picking up on this notion that you just said about protecting the status quo, why is it that white Christians, and I really want to emphasize the Christians here, uh, are so eager to embrace the uh, mythology of the U.S. at uh, this this myth of American in- innocence. Um, why? I mean, I you can see maybe for white people in general, but why the Christians? You think? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I argue, in fact, the language that I use in one of my chapters is literally that Christian supremacy birthed white supremacy into the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that white supremacy is first and foremost a diseased Christian theology more than it is just some kind of secular social problem. And, and if we, and, and, and the reason, why, so just going back a little bit in terms of historically, yeah. I mean, 15th century, the church is giving, writing papal bulls, literally official church teachings, mm-hmm. um, giving permission to go and colonize and to engage in conquest, to enslave and plunder um, yeah. people all around the world. And so then, you know, with, Portugal and and Spain, they begin it, but then everyone else follows suit. And so we see this pattern in which those early moments of colonialism are actually, uh, at least in the minds of the actors, uh, Christian practices that they're engaging in. They see themselves as participating in the mission of God. Mine, imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so when we begin to now think about what develops in the context of that, uh, racial hierarchy and white supremacy, organizing society by race, which we call racism or systemic racism. Like all these things are outflows that on one hand, we can say, yes, they've taken on a life of their own, but nonetheless, their origins are diseased Christian thinking. And so I think that that is one of the explanations. And I think there was a recent survey that just came out about how white Christians in response to, after seeing, I mean, it just blows my mind. After seeing and hearing about all these black people once again and getting put in the news around them being shot in the back, killed unarmed. And the response is doubling down in apathy and uninspired to respond to racial justice. I mean, that's what the Barna report said. And so there's something really deeply um, troubling about the kind of faith that is being expressed that could result in that response to people being executed in the streets. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring. 
and with help from Everance. Many of us are taking it day by day, step by step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everance.com. It just it blows me away because I can't find in the scriptures much to justify the kind of uh, nationalistic zeal that I'm seeing in white Christianity, although I know it's really not about the scriptures, as we're right. saying. It's really about pre- preserving something or protecting something so Jesus gets created in human beings' image here. Um, so so I don't want to address everything that centers white evangelicalism, I, but I am going to ask you a question that I think about a lot, yeah. and is that, do you think, and maybe we could change that verb to hope, I don't know, do you think or hope that white evangelicalism is dying? Yeah. Um, I guess my answer would be, yes, I hope that it dies. <laughs> um, and that can mean two different things. And I'm okay yeah, with yeah. either of these, right? Um, yeah. I'm okay with it just dying and never returning mm-hmm. or dying and resurrecting into something else, right? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but as it exists now, it for the most part, and, and obviously there are, I know, I'll, I, I've got friends who will tell me, hey, Drew, I'm an evangelical too, right? And yeah, I don't want to yeah. discount right, their right. genuine, authentic expression through evangelicalism, I don't want to discount right. that, but as yeah. a broader movement, it's a death-dealing force in this country. It is yeah. a death-dealing force. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't want to, I, I think we would all be better off, our whole entire society and our the possibility of moving towards beloved community would be greater without the evangelical force that we know as um, evangelicalism in our society today. Wow. you, you Boy, you hit at something I was thinking about too, and that... Um uh, not not to center whiteness right now, but you talked about tearing something needs to be torn down. And I, I was thinking about the prophet Jeremiah. Um, he's witnessing to Judah and his message that God gives him and that he gives to uh, the people is that God is going to tear down and then build mm-hmm. up. I mean, he uses right. that phrase comes, yep. you know, several times in the book. So it sounds like, uh, at, at least on one level, we're saying that what we know right now is white evangelicalism is okay if that gets torn down. Uh, would you say, would you, what would you say needs to be built up in its place? Or when you said resurrected was the word you use, and you, you also made reference to beloved community. What's that look like? I'm one of those guys that like to use the phrase radical discipleship, right? What does it mean to yeah. take Jesus seriously mm-hmm. um, in his life and teachings? And I think that some of what, I find in evangelicalism is a skirting of the teachings and life of Jesus and not really taking it very seriously. I have a colleague, um, Richard Crane in my department. He's one of the theologians of my department. He jokes and says that uh, we treat Jesus like our crazy uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, right? The one who like just says off the wild stuff and nobody really takes seriously because they're just, oh, that's uncle so-and-so. He don't, you don't really yeah. listen to what he says, right? Right, right. And that's kind of how we treat Jesus. And I think evangelicals wow. too often, um, so many have treated Jesus like the crazy uncle. They don't, Jesus didn't really mean, you know, that he came to yeah. preach good news to the poor. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think that that would be the first thing. Um, and second, mm. um, to reimagine wow. what it means to be a counter witness in society. Right. Because I think yes. right now the ch- I mean, there's this, uh, strange way in which white evangelicals in particular seem to be obsessed with creating this myth around them being persecuted 
while they're trying to pull the levers of coercive Christianity and pose it on others, right? And so it's just this really strange dance that is done um, that is trying to, instead of actually, and this goes back to the first point, instead of actually trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus so radically that we experience the backlash from um, oppressive powers that are trying to Mm -hmm. resist us, Right. Instead, they redefine what crucifixion and persecution mean to fit their lives, right? Yeah, um, and so it goes wow. in the other direction. And so I think that um, that would be another thing is just um, what kind of ways, what kind of practices, what is Jesus actually inviting us to that seems to be in in, in the story of Jesus centering the marginalized, centering um, the vulnerable, centering those who have been most stigmatized, right? The least last and lost of society. Mm-hmm. How do we begin to create community that models and embodies that kind of practice in its yeah. life? And then finally, I mean, I think it's got to be explicitly and un- 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 uncompromisingly about doing justice and peacemaking, um, yeah. ultimately leading towards God's shalom, right? As the end goal. And so I think that mm-hmm. that would be some of the stuff that I would hope for if there was a, a death and a resurrection of evangelicalism, yeah. that that would be a part of it. Wow. That's great, man. You, whew, Boy, you hit on some good and powerful themes in there. And one of them, you know, resonates with me because as you, because my own uh, might from the margins, I'm trying to uh, celebrate the, the uh, voice, the posture, the faith of those who've been marginalized by, by the dominant society to say yeah. that we see Jesus there. So I think my question, actually, I want to tease that out a little bit because you just even got to my own thesis there, is how how are Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, uh, uh, BIPOC, we say, or BIPOC, yeah. how, how how might we continue to challenge this uh, mythology of the, of the USA, especially those of us who follow Jesus? So, like, in other words, what's our space here? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's important that we, like, we've been here. I, one of the things I actually get frustrated with is when, um, in particular, and it usually it's usually white Christians, although I have seen some black and brown Christians as well mm-hmm. do the same mm-hmm. thing, but especially when they say, oh, Christianity is in the decline and Christianity is meaningless in this country mm-hmm. and it's just kind mm-hmm. of overemphasizing, mm-hmm. you know, a particular kind of Christianity that and ignores the fact that a whole nother stream has always existed, right? Yeah, We've been yeah. here. Um, our right. ancestors Amen. have been here and they've encountered <laughs> right. Jesus. I mean, from the beginning, they've been re-articulating and, and speaking back to the broader society about what it means to be followers of Jesus. Yeah. And so I think that um, it's, it's a disservice, it's disingenuous, and it's, and it's offensive in many ways to just mm-hmm. to ignore and erase the, the, the witness of black and brown Christians that have been uh, faithfully trying to follow Jesus and speaking back to what we've seen in the society. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I literally yeah. write a chapter called Talking mm-hmm. Back, Talking Black, right? Yes, um, yes. It's just this speaking back to the broader society. And I love how Frederick Douglass says it, you know, he frames, you know, true Christianity versus the religion of this land. That's right, um, that's right. And, he, and for him, they're diametrically opposed to one another. And so if he loves... The lovable, peaceable Christ. He then he says he hates the slave holding, woman whipping, cradle robbing uh, religion of this land. Amen. Right, Amen. and I think yep. that that is the kind of response that is necessary because we need because there's something at stake in the public square when we only allow the domesticated status quo version of Jesus, the rebranded Jesus that wasn't yes. good enough. Yes. you know, 
um, that if that is the only voice in the public square, then then it's actually a disservice to to our God that we serve as well as to our ancestors. Oh, amen. Amen. Yeah, that's why I'm trying to keep my uh, my voice even as I get older here. I want to keep on raising my voice here and encouraged by uh, younger folks like you um, who are doing the same thing because there is a different witness, man. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's that's what you're saying in the book uh, and in so many places. There, there's a lot that I'm excited about in the book. I'll just be honest with you. I mean, and uh, and that, and I'm a New Testament scholar as well as having been a pastor your chapter liberating Barabbas uh, oh, yeah. was intriguing. Was intriguing. I liked it, and um, yeah. but I, and I found myself thinking about. I don't know if we got any um, Marvel fans out here, but I found myself thinking about Eric Killmonger in the Black Panther movie. Now I won't get into all that now, but my family resonated with Killmonger's message, yeah. if not all his yeah, methods. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And, and, and Killmonger, to me, is analogous to Barabbas, <laughs> at least in my head. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you could give us a brief overview of what you're doing in your Liberating Barabbas chapter. Without, Yeah, I want people to buy the book, but I want yeah. you to maybe tease us a little bit. With it. It. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's one of my favorite chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I do at first is just to think about what are some of the popular ways that Barabbas gets described, both popular culture, movies, you know, I actually Googled, I was doing all kinds of stuff. And, and what, and what you see is Barabbas is often described as uh, mentally challenged. Like he's some crazed lunatic or he's some serial killer. Um, there's actual like movies with him, like cockeyed and foaming at the mouth almost like, wow. you know, just wow. this kind of wild depictions of mm-hmm. Barabbas that are out there. So that's one way that he's described is almost like, He's just going around killing people in the villages for no reason. You know, mm. it's that kind of image. And then you have, uh, on the more sophisticated side of it, you have this evangelical use of Barabbas, which solely is worried about how they can use him to kind of um, use the biblical, the, the uh, metaphor, the atonement metaphor of penal substitutionary atonement, right? Oh, yeah. So he's kind yeah, of like right. used to, to make that point. Uh, but what is interesting in either of those cases, whether it be the depictions or the penal atonement usage of him, is that the Bible has nothing to say about any of those things in that direction. Um, that's that's right. not why he shows up. In fact, it's interesting, in all four Gospels, Barabbas mm-hmm. shows up every single time. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned, I'm like, we don't we get one real Christmas story, maybe two and a half. I mean, one and a half, that's depending right. on how you want to, you know. That's um, right. And yet the gospel writers seem to think it was necessary to include Barabbas in every single gospel, including John, right? Yeah. And so so what's fascinating about that is what they actually say about Barabbas. They're consistent. The record is is not fuzzy. It's he can he participated in insurrection. Yeah. He was a revolutionary. He he participated in the uprisings. And that's so right. that's why he was captured. And so when you begin to realize that, and you know all the history around, I mean, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't necessarily understand just the history of the Jews in revolts yeah. against Rome and all the history before them, the Maccabees, all of that, right? Right, that's right. That you have this tradition of resistance, the revolution is in the air. When Jesus comes in, they compare Barabbas and Jesus to one another. Yeah. Um, what we see, in fact, and I also point that in Matthew, the original manuscripts talk about Jesus Barabbas, um, yes, that's right. which is really that's right. interesting, right? Because Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, right? The one who saves. Yes. Um, Who's going to be your savior? Who's going to be your liberator? Um, and I don't think, uh, based on what we see in the actual Gospels, that it's trying to say Barabbas is an earthly savior and Jesus is a spiritual savior. 
that misses it altogether because clearly Jesus is about your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. They're both the earthly messages. It's about the kind of way about which they're going to go yeah. about revolution, right? Yeah. Well, Brother Drew, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Would you be willing to come back and talk with us some more about what God is doing through you, through your writing, and what you're seeing in the world? Because I think of you like a prophet, that you have the ability to see what's happening and address what's going on. Would you be willing to come back sometime? Absolutely. I'd love to. You mentioned that you're uh, on social media. How can people find you on social media? Yeah, so you can find me at Drew Hart, D-R-U-H-A-R-T, for both Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, and I have a Facebook author page as well. Um, I have a website, DrewGIHart.com. My two books, uh, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, and Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance, can be found anywhere where books are sold. All right, awesome. Well, thanks again, my brother, and God bless you. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support Ing Podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of Ing Podcast. Today's episode was also supported by Mosaic Mennonite Conference, a community of congregations and nonprofit ministries committed to living like Jesus together in our broken and beautiful world. Find out more at mosaicmennonites.org. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on Ing Podcast? Let us know by emailing theing at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Today's show was produced by me, Ben Weidman. Ing Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.